Hello world, I'm Jared Cunningham. This is the Freelance Forum Autumn 2021 podcast series. Over the years, the Freelance Forum has been made possible by support from the National Union of Journalists and the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. This is episode 31 and I'm going to hand over now to Stephen Burke who's talking on the topic of getting started as a freelance journalist in 2021. Welcome to the Freelance Forum podcast with myself, Stephen Burke. I'm joined today by Aoife Kearns from WLORFM and Nathan Young from the University Observer. Both of these guys are new to the journalism industry, beginning their careers and beginning it into a, well, it was challenging enough to begin with. The costs are going the way they're going. The cost of living hasn't got any better. And I bet it's a difficult time to even think about starting a career in what is often a very precarious, uh, a very poorly paid, and a very stressful industry. What in the name of God are you doing here? Aoife, let's start with you. <laughs> well, it's actually quite funny you should say that because uh, I graduated in 2020, so last year. Um, so started my job in September of 2020, but I think when I started college initially, it was very much, we were told exactly what you just said there, that it's a very difficult time to get into journalism, you know, yourself, the print is dying. And and uh, I don't know if these um, these paywalls are working and all of the rest. Um, but by the time I'd actually finished, it, well, by the time I got to my final year of college, um, you know, before Christmas, say, um, before March of 2020, you know, there was finally this, you know, actually, this paywall thing is going well. Um, you know, things are on the up. Digital is working. Finally, we see some light. And then the pandemic hit. So I suppose uh, <laughs> I, I think I think in some ways there's always going to be that kind of, um, you know, that the precarious nature, as you said, of journalism. I think that's something you kind of sign up for to an extent. Um but like I suppose the positive is and probably the reason that we all, you know, torment ourselves doing it is that you're doing something that you love. It's kind of a vocation. Um, it's not you're probably not in it for the hundred dollar bills, as they say. <laughs> Nathan, what, what exactly interested you in the profession? Um, I don't think I could do anything else. I don't think I could do anything else particularly well. I mean, it's a uh, writing is um I mean, it sounds cliche to say a passion or a vocation, but uh, I, I think I'd be pretty terrible as a, a lawyer or a politician or something. Can't, I'm not very good at numbers, so journalism just kind of was, was the... When I, when I was quite young, I decided I wanted to be a journalist. And then as time's gone on, I've sort of learnt what kind of journalism I would like to do and where, what areas I'd like to work in. Yeah, I, I decided long before I was aware of how precarious... It was as an industry before I was aware about the how digitization has sort of left the, the industry with no money, how uh, how online ad revenue does not make up for print ad revenue and paywalls certainly don't make up for uh, print sales um, and all of these other and, and also how conglomerations and newspapers have gutted the idea of lo- the local press with, along with it, which... Uh, loses a huge number of jobs so that was all before I, I decided to be a journalist before I was aware of all of those issues um now I was aware of them by the time I was in college but UCD doesn't have uh, an undergraduate journalism course uh there's a few media communications and data journalism courses offered some of which are taken by people who are already working in the industry but generally speaking for 
for the people I work with in the Observer, it's um, it's people who are interested in writing, want to do something journalism related, they think. And it's only through the fact that we have quite supportive alumni who are working full time in the industry that a lot of the stuff you might learn in a, in a journalism course about the hustle of actually getting work, the nature of the freelance world, that kind of thing can actually be like something you can learn. You kind of have to teach yourself or learn it at events from talking and networking rather than sitting down in class and being told, why are you doing here? There's no money. Do something else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, for me, for me personally, there was a moment in my life where, you know, uh, I remember when I was a, of a certain age, I think I was, I was only just finishing primary school was when they were fixing settling up to invade Iraq. And I remember seeing Mark Little away off doing pieces to camera over a satellite feed. And I think, yeah, you know, that kind of thing still go, you know, that kind of thing still obviously goes on, but that's what got me going. I was like, this is so cool. And before that, I think I wanted to be a weather forecaster because obviously I must've been watching too much TV. Was there ever a moment like that for either of you guys? Do you know what? I actually used to say that I wanted to be a meteorologist because I was too afraid to say I wanted to be a journalist. I was like, oh, that one. If I went through and said I wanted to be a journalist, they'd be like, notions. <laughs> <laughs> and then you realise the mathematical the, the mathematical component. To yeah. Going to be a, I mean, I didn't even do geography in my leaving course, so. <laughs> Nathan, have um, I'm going to have to be cliche again. I think the growing up reading people like George Orwell, Jessica Mitford, you know, uh, that sort of thing sort of introduced me to this world of, and so after having already decided I wanted to be a journalist when I was sort of junior cycle age, it was going to be National Geographic because I liked, I liked the magazine and the, I thought the pic, the journalist got to go to really cool places and the picture's always pretty. But I think it was as a, as a teenager reading the fiction as well, but reading like the essays and the books of um, people from a more sort of radical um, campaigning investigative tradition sort of taught me this is something I could actually do. And, th and it's something that at that stage, when you learn that it's not it's not all it's not going to pay very well, it's quite precarious, all the rest of it, you think at least it's worth it, at least, you know, you're, you're, you're putting your name to as long as you can, as long as you're good at it, you're putting your name to like a worthy cause almost. I think Aoife and I just wanted to be on TV. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are on Zoom. <laughs> and, and here we are. It's almost as good. So so looking forward, like obviously, Nathan, you have a, a great position there as the University Observer Ed, and you're making great contacts. Aoife has picked up work as well in WLR and, and is also, I think, an award-winning journalist, if I'm correct. Yeah. I, Want to tell I us what the award is? <laughs> um, I won the Arts and Features uh, Student Media Award. Um, it was Radio Production of the Year. Um, so I won that at this media's just during the summer months. Um, it was my final year project, um, final year radio documentary. Um, and I, I still stand by, I think, um, even after a year of working, it is 100% my favourite piece that I've ever produced, definitely. Um, so yeah, sure, it was it was nice now a nice little. I didn't expect it, obviously, um, but uh, it was great. It was great to get a bit of recognition, anyway. Absolutely, yeah. fair to fair to say, of course, fair to say, really that uh, you two are probably 
of your of your sort of that two year age gap, you're probably two of the most you know the foremost people who are likely to make a success of this this industry. So what what do you see as being the path forward? Do you see a clear path forward? Will we start with Nathan? Uh, sure. Um, I guess as my as my my time is winding up, um, when, whenever that comes around, I'll uh, start applying for uh, entry level positions. Uh, I actually have one uh, year more of college to do after this so I'm a match on a sabbatical but mm. I guess looking for I know reach PLC at least used to have a model where they did a lot of freelance shifts um, and now this is the this is the bit that gets a little bit hairy I guess is um freelance shifts aren't necessarily the best way of uh, working in the industry full-time you know, I know a lot of people who've um, some some of them have also worked for the the Observer or contributed to the Observer throughout the years. That mm. have actually worked part time doing freelance shifts for people like News Talk, doing freelance shifts for, like I said, Reach PLC. But it's a relatively precarious way to make a, a full time living for people who finish college and are doing it full time. I have several friends who work in in the industry doing freelance shifts who are like might get paid slightly more than if they were doing a, a wage job, but they have none of the security or the protection. And then the other thing, and this is true of a huge number of companies, is that kind of work leaves you in a position where you're sort of rated on your ability to get uh, to get clicks, which sort of takes the, the sort of the passion and the soul out of it when you're told, yes, court reporting, very important, but uh, no one really cares about the courts. What you need to do is write that, uh, you know, Aldi is, put out a job is going to build three more stores and that leads to how many jobs because everyone's going to share it on Facebook and tag their unemployed friends and that's going to get us clicks and it's perhaps not um, and it's perhaps a bit depressing as a uh, looking out on the industry and knowing people who are seven eight years into the industry who are picking up gigs doing listicles because there's nothing going yeah. <laughs> sort of thinking was it what, what are you going to do with a year's experience in a college paper uh, <laughs> to compete with these people who've been professionals for seven years who are still getting that kind of that kind of work offered to them. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have an answer I, for you there. That's what I do. <laughs> Aoife, you were saying. I, I, yeah. I, in some ways I understand people's kind of uh, frustration with the whole kind of clickbait culture, if you want to call it that. But I think in some ways um, I know people might argue it's some sort of infotainment, if you want to call it that, but I love the idea myself of creating something, be it written, be it a package, be it a report, but that people really connect with. And at the end of the day, especially, I suppose, um, when it comes to radio, if you kind of think about radio specifically, just like, uh, maybe maybe it is a bit of people pleasing. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but uh, I love that. I, like, whenever I do something, um, I'm, gen I'm, I'm not... I'm obviously like there's a bit of yourself that you're putting into it but all the time I'm thinking about okay I'm driving the car I'm driving the tractor um, and I have put on WLORFM or that's what I'm thinking every you know that's what that's what I, I think is really really important um, to think about when you are a journalist maybe it is maybe I'm maybe I'm um, uh, what's the word uh, creating infotainment or whatever but um, I just think it's it's I, I just have this kind of um, that's why I kind of really wanted to get into it in the first place just I love the idea of yeah of course you're informing people and you, you know there's there's that aspect of it but also 
you know, there, there's like just thinking about your audience, audience and thinking about what people want here or what you might think your audience is. Because I know, for example, it's, um, you know, WLRFM, you could be a, a farmer up in the Cumber Mountains um, gathering your sheep and pulled in in the Jeep. Or you could be um, a businessman that's earning, I don't know, like 50 grand a year plus and living in the best area of Waterford City. But, you know, you kind of have to create a variety of content. Um, and I don't I don't know if I make any sense there, but uh, oh, I just love the idea of um, creating something that people can connect with and that you know create, creating something um but i'd be interested even just from yourself um Stephen, just i suppose mm. in terms of the freelance work um uh, uh, like you know do you, do you feel as though is do you feel that kind of pressure just i suppose um as uh nathan was saying just about the you know it's it's, it's obviously a pre- precarious enough um career path but do you, do you like the variety of it i suppose i i sort of enjoyed the it's taken me a little while to get into it. I got to be honest. Um, I was getting nowhere. I was my so my background is. Some people will know me. Some people won't. Is is that for many years I I worked uh, on the subs bench and production desk in the Sunday Business Post. And I wanted to be a reporter. I was just like, this isn't really meeting my career goals. So I went and started working weekends, uh, doing freelancing and freelance news shifts. So from absolutely one end of things to the other. And I found, obviously, news is a very addictive way to work, even and it's paying me a lot less than working in the production desk. But I found that with a sort of a blended model, I was able to get the experience that I wanted while also paying some of the bills. Now, obviously, I'm not on a gigantic wage, but if you're earning a certain amount and you're earning a certain amount less, you know, well, if I had one piece of advice for people who, are starting off in their career is part-time work looks exactly the same on a CV as full-time work. And you don't need to work five days a week to, you don't have to do really bad hours all the time for really bad pay. You can mix in a little bit of this, a little bit of that and do something else that pays while building up a year's experience on your CV even if it is part-time, if you know what I mean. So, you know, you've time to do your Nixers. You've, you can say to people, and this is, the, this is the only thing that freelancing has going for it, is the right of refusal, because that's the, that and whether or not they pay your holidays is what marks you out from an employee. And it's a fine line in the industry. It's such a fine line. And there are debates as to how many people working in news desks truly are freelance contractors. But you do have the right of refusal just because someone says of these shifts, these shifts and these shifts for you uh, any given week doesn't mean that you're actually stuck working for them unless they're putting you on a contract, buying your time on a full-time basis. You can say, oh, sorry, this doesn't really work for me. And, mm, you know, I've a, I have something else going on that week and they may be very fixed in their rates. And that's the point at which you can walk if you've got better paying work. Someone, far more senior in the industry always just said just said to me just follow the money uh unless there's something in it for you then you know i have taken pay cuts to do work that i wanted that involved picking up um you know experience as a courts reporter for instance um and what i would say is 
things sort of follow you, you know, like even Ixer here that pays pretty well. And that's one day a week gone and in Ixer there that pays for a half day a week. And that's another half day gone. And, you know, so you've effectively got three or four days free, or you can do stuff at nights and stuff or a little bit extra here, or a little bit extra there. And there's a little bit of flexibility in the schedule. And it kind of gets things over the line in terms of making the sums come towards something that just about sort of pays the bills, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the it's the autonomy to say no it's the ability to say no to stuff and that's that's what i i hate to say like about it but it's the only it's the only advantage of it looking at it objectively i think uh that that that's that's the only piece of advice i ever have for anybody is that you don't have to work full-time for somebody if they're paying you crap money you can always just work part-time and it looks just as good in the cv and if you're working part-time, uh, be it in college or whatever it might be, um, I did two years part-time, You'll there probably will be times that you will not, by any stretch of the word, be working uh, part-time. <laughs> There'll be holidays and there'll be this, that and the other. And yeah. it's all it's all experience. Um, but as you said, I think it's very, yeah, that's, that is that is an advantage. Certainly, you know, um, you're not stuck to any shift. Mm. Um, like, yeah, you have the right of refusal and that's important um just in terms of yourself nathan i I suppose i'm coming at it from a different angle um just in terms of yourself and um with the observer um would it be kind of um would you be would you kind of mainly do the writing or would there be kind of different sections of the website designated to production and like with where would there be different i suppose um jobs within the within the um um paper so so the the job description is very hectic of uh, whatever needs doing you do as, as it's a student paper in a college without a without a real journalism school or faculty it's a small school of communication like I said but there's not a huge number of people studying this so it's a uh, on a day-to-day basis it's mostly people management and editing everything before it goes off on the website because of and into print because obviously my responsibility if something gets printed that's uh incorrect or libelous or anything like that or or plagiarized or that kind of thing so we end up uh and this is true of most editors of the paper throughout the years is you end up with a a fair chunk of writing during a production weekend just whatever hasn't been taken up by anyone else and generally speaking as the people with most time and also the most experience and knowledge of how the campus works more likely to to be writing the front page stories now, we always try and encourage and bring in people to help train and whatever members of the team to, to do the investigative work. Um, but oftentimes it ends up being um, it ends up being uh, the editor who or one of the senior editors who's writing front page news stories just because they tend to be something new and original and reporting. So that, it's, it's kind of a mix because, I mean, it's, today we have orientation week. So today is actually for incoming second year. So today is like, and this whole hectic. week and next week <laughs> the first year is hectic. But also a lot of it isn't directly journalism. A lot of it is getting little, uh, little pressures to sign up to participate in the uh, newspaper. What's, um, it been, what's it been like covering campus politics and campus affairs and stuff while also being on lockdown for the last two years? Lockdown is interesting. Um, it was handled terribly by basically every university in the country. Um, <laughs> UCD had last year the editor um, Darren ran a front page which just said UCD did not uh, fully prepare for lockdown. And basically, the day after they said that campus was going to be in lockdown for the full year, or a few days after, 
just took a camera and went around campus and went to see, you know, those buildings that would be collected, connected by one of those sky bridges. And you'd be stay left on one side and stay right on the other because each building was doing its own one-way system. So that bridge <laughs> then becomes a, a point of chaos. And so going through around campus and trying to figure out, because there was rumors that uh, college had planned on not coming back and knew that we weren't coming back and uh, ha- hadn't really been prepared for it. So she went around and just checked what was actually ready. Was the hand sanitizer in every building? Because that lockdown hadn't been announced for universities to be at level five when it had been, there would have been however many thousand students back on campus at that stage. So um, yeah, that's why. So, so it's been interesting there. Uh, students union and societies have been a lot less exciting because there's less drama. Can be... Uh, and I don't know if it's there's less drama or it's slightly more difficult to access knowing what's going on because there's fewer people getting into arguments with each other in student in um, public areas, <laughs> what? Up, going off to sound off against each other, coming up to, <laughs> to share the gossip of what's happened. Yeah. Um, but the other thing we found is it's, it was handled so terribly that how do I say phrase this? Perhaps most, people's anger was redirected at different people for once. Most support units and colleges that I heard any sort of a rumor about having a problem with management who I then got in touch with, it turns out the rumor was true. <laughs> um, and I'd say one of the best things is uh, one of the best ways of operating is to just assume all rumors are true. For legal reasons, you don't print them. But if you assume it's true and follow the trail, there was a lot of... Um, now, there's a few stories that got killed because the only person who could actually confirm it was the only person who confirmed it and therefore couldn't couldn't be quoted directly and the story couldn't run because it would be known that they were the one who told us, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, or they told the person who told us. But in general, you'd, you'd phone up ahead of a school and say, hey, from the paper, I heard this happened. And they'd go, is this on the record? And you'd say, not yet. Well, yes, it happened. This is the full story. Uh, some of it, some of it, you could go in FOI minutes or communications and get something. Some of it, you couldn't. But uh, it's been it's been very interesting, and it's been very interesting seeing the such a large body like UCD, the sort of the dynamic between senior management and people who would have seemed like senior management when you were still a student. Um, you know, heads of school, heads of faculty, heads of support units, deputy heads of support units, and whatever, actually having quite a lot going on behind the scenes that uh, if you can get your hands on is actually like a uh, quite good and really worthy of publishing because uh, mm. there's been a lot of stuff that's um, I don't know it's been very interesting and very useful for students and staff to be able to have on paper that yes these things have been happening and this is how it was handled I see I found it I found it in, in my news work uh, I've become more and more reliant or more more tragically reliant on you know using social media to try and see what the flip is going on anywhere uh, and try and spot emerging trends, find people. And just because there's no way really, or hasn't been for nearly two years of going out and talking to people, hearing stuff in the pub, hearing stuff from your mates, is that any sort of new trend you're almost always getting it off Twitter or Facebook, which almost seems a bit sad, really. Yeah, no, I'd say, I'd say social media is incredibly important for any kind of a journalist. Well, even before the pandemic, I would suggest, and this is true of, um, this, this is probably more true of higher education than most other things. 
But if there's a bit, because obviously academics have a lot more freedom than, um, say, a senior civil servant working any other sort of civil service or state or semi-state job, and they're more vocal. But you can, you can look up Twitter and you can hear that a, an academic has said something or that they might be sympathetic to some student cause or something. You can go find their Twitter and order them to said things publicly. And if someone said something publicly, it's well worth DMing them to see what which bits they held back and then to see if that's something that could be that could be published. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's uh and that was true even before the pandemic. It's always it's uh, uh, social media is incredibly useful for uh, if you're a modern journalist, obviously you have to promote your own work and everything else. But if you're not using social media to keep an eye on what's being said and done, uh, I think you're, you're you're probably missing out. You're probably missing out on stories. Mm. Because the internet is real life now. I mean, it, it, it always has been. It's been as, it's as close to real life as um, any form of media has ever been <laughs> historically. I mean, it's a different platform and it's a different medium and it's different to speaking to someone sort of in person. But uh, if someone says something on Twitter, it's just, uh, someone has, if, if someone says something on Twitter, it's just the same as they said it to you in person or if they said it anywhere in public. I mean... It's almost the same as if they they printed it because you know it's on the record they, they said it it's there so yeah it's also also this is another thing that is a very useful tool if you're using social media you can search on Twitter you can search by area so you can go on and see people who you do not follow um, some of the stuff about Dolores Cahill uh, and her interactions with her local community you just you can actually use Twitter to search just what are people tweeting about in Ennis. And then you get the tweets from the area and you don't have any mutual followers with these people. You're completely disconnected from them. But suddenly you've got all these rumors now that are going out in the local area of a figure who you are covering and you do have an interest in. And some of them will block you as soon as you message them, yeah. confused as to what you're doing. And some of them will reply <laughs> and tell you and tell you what the details are and uh, prove that they're a real person and uh, <laughs> give you something useful to use. Give you a WhatsApp number and have a chat with you. That's, that's a usable use of um, social media as well, which I'm sure more and more people are using for international uh, reporting as well. If you want to know what's going on in a foreign country or a foreign city, you just check the, the Twitter of that, of the location you're looking, and you can see what random people with 200 followers are sort of saying. And it's essentially the same as talking to taxi drivers and barmen in a new town. It's, yeah. You get to see what regular folk are saying about something. My favorite little trick, you know, in the before times was whenever there was like fog and Krakow and a lot of Ryanair flights canceled or something was just to search the mentions of Aer Lingus and Ryanair or whatever for whatever the city it was. And we're just like, ah, you're stuck, are you? Like, guys, we always just like, how are you finding these people? There you go. You got that one for free. I want to talk next about getting paid. Do you feel Aoife in your college experience in a professional journalism degree that you were fully prepared for running your own small business? That I was fully prepared for running my own small business. Certainly As not. As a sole trader. <laughs> certainly not. And I know in fairness, I have to say um, there, the college made a big effort in getting um, a number of freelance journalists in to do talks with us. Um, obviously Kenneth or Ken Fox, was one of the lecturers in the college and you know he's he's great at the FOIing and uh, the freelance journalism he's a fantastic journalist um and 
Maybe, maybe, yeah, in terms of actually learning how to run uh, my own business, I don't, I don't know if, if we were doing now um, budgets and, and all of the rest, household budgets and all of that kind of thing and invoices. And, but um, yeah, I, I suppose I, I certainly wouldn't have uh, thought about it like the way that you just put it there, that it is your own business going into journalism. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I think that um, just, I mean, the way, that I would see it is that I wouldn't completely rule out um, being freelance at some stage in my life. Um, going down the line, I think that the opportunity is there now as well. Um, that like, you know, with the remote, sure, we're here on Zoom chatting away and you have the remote working and all that kind of thing. I think that might make it somewhat easier. But um, um, yeah, just in terms of actually logistically becoming a freelancer and doing up my budgets and my invoices and, you know, sorting out my bills with the tax man. I, I don't know uh, <laughs> if the, the college degree necessarily prepared me for that. No, that's sort of, well, I think, I think looking back on the last seven years of my career, I think what held me up most actually as a professional and in getting into the sort of jobs and sort of work that I wanted to do, I think what has held me up most was a lack of confidence around demanding payment a lack of confidence with regard to managing my finances and issuing invoices, chasing up on the invoices, making sure I was getting paid and finding work that was going to make it worth my while or finding, finding people that would pay to make it worth my while. Now, maybe that was a symptom of the times and there not being as many opportunities for freelancers back then. But I feel that if I was to go back and design a journalism school curriculum, I would do a lot more on debt collection for starters and how to write an invoice and how to, how to apply late payment fees and all this kind of thing. Nathan, have, have you been, have, have, what is your, have you had any, I'm sure you've done, have you, have you done freelance work that has involved invoicing for it? I think we've lost Eva, have we? Should be back. Uh, I've actually never done any uh, paid freelance work. Um, the job I'm doing at the moment is a uh, salaried directly by UCDSU who are, if nothing else, the the paycheck is the same every week and it comes in on time. So I guess one of the difficulties I'd have would be doing that kind of work. Um, and especially difficult as well, because even if it was to be included in a in a journalism course, it's of course not what uh not what we have. No, naturally. Um so we we we're we're considering having a having a freelance journalist who does a lot of that give a talk at some stage this year for the mm-hmm. team, just to get a just for anyone who's considering doing it for either after college or even as a weekend job during college. But it's kind of a, a, this terrifying void, the idea of uh, trying to get paid. I tried, pitching a few over the, I tried pitching a few over the summer and there was a, there was a notable, uh, a few of the people I went to, there was a notable lack of uh, money being offered. Um, <laughs> I don't want to name anyone, but uh, I got an email from one publication which said that it was a really good pitch and they loved it and that they couldn't possibly, and that they actually, because they weren't printing because of the pandemic, they weren't going to, they weren't paying, but they mm. loved to platform a new writer. Sounded, sounded very, very much like a woke way of saying exposure. Not necessarily something I'd want to provide my, give to my landlord as a, in exchange for the rent. So one of the things that I do think is worrying for a lot of journalists looking at the industry is there's very little, and this might be 
because the kind of people writing for a college people are often quite idealistic. There's very little in the terms of unequivocally good publications and jobs. Um, I might actually, I might actually cite the um, Dublin Enquirer as a as a local paper, which is um, I think it's run as a co-op. Fantastic content, front to back, no sponsored content of any kind. But also as a local paper, very few jobs going, very small subscription readership. So mm. not something that everyone who has a high-minded ideals is going to do. So you're going to end up probably having to take a job if you're not going freelance. And even if you are going freelance, you're going to be doing shifts in publications and in papers and for radio stations who um, will probably run stories and opinion pieces and certainly have a set of columnists who are not fantastic. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, a job's a job. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mm. stand against not anyone. Ignorant. But it, it does leave you in a difficult position if you can't really be going around complaining about people who write for or, or who have taken paid work from X, Y, or Z because X, Y, or Z also has such and such a broadcaster who said something nasty. You know, that's, that's, that would probably be true of anyone in the country, you know? Yeah. Um, Very good. I want to move next to just the cost of living. Uh, Aoife and myself were talking before we went on air, but what's your rent like, Nathan? Um, my rent is uh, five to 600 euros a month for a bedroom with no external window um, in a two bedroom apartment in Dublin. Aoife, what are you paying? Um, I'm just after moving home <laughs> because uh, I was living um, I was living away from home for the summer. I work in the lo- I work in WLRFM and I live my home place where I was born and bred is about 20 minutes of a drive away and I had to learn how to drive a car when I was 17 because uh, uh, it's a four and a half to five mile walk to the closest village. <laughs> so um, yeah, so I'm not paying paying rent at the minute, which you know um, I suppose I'm very lucky because of the fact um, you know obviously starting off like um, as a graduate, um, you know when you're paying likes what you're paying now, Nathan up in Dublin, um, you know you're you're really living. You're really scraping, like, you know, it it definitely is an advantage um, for myself anyway. It certainly would have kind of enticed me to take the job in the first place, being so close to home and being able to uh, live at home. Um, But, uh, yeah, and I know, you know, when I was in college and that, um, obviously I was was paying rent then, but, um, yeah, I think I... I, I would see it as an advantage for now in the early stages of my career. Um, maybe a reflection just on the general kind of graduate salaries out there. Um, but do you, um, do you think you could take a job in Dublin at the moment at the sort of salaries that are going in Dublin at the moment? Do I think I could take a job in Dublin at the minute? To be honest, um, I'm actually really happy where I am at the minute. Um, mm. Starting off low in a local station report. And if you, you were you're happy, you're happy where you are is the long and the short of it. Yeah. I, 
because I, I'm th- I'm thinking now because the you know the graduate salaries haven't changed that much in the last five years, but the rents have, and like I'm th- like I'm I'm I've just moved home myself because I couldn't afford to pay seven hundred and fifteen euro a month, uh, and and also take a slight pay cut to take up some other work, um, and I I'm not sure that I could take up the job that I took up in twenty fourteen with the sort of rents that are being paid now i certainly couldn't afford what nathan is paying i certainly couldn't afford what i was paying up, up to up to the up to up to march or april or may and i i don't get the sense that graduates are being paid any much more than i was in 2014 the rents have nearly doubled in fact i did the very harrowing sums on what it would what i would have to earn to not be in housing stress i.e be paying more than 30 percent of my income and um you know in order to rent a one-bed flat in even blanchestown or somewhere you know on the outskirts of the city and i think the figure i come up with was over fifty thousand euro a year which let me assure you is not anything near what i earn at the moment or anything close it's probably about 16 or 17 grand in the difference and that's just without wishing to just get into yeah the rent is too damn high I think this is going to start to become a structural issue for for the newspaper industry. I mean, there's going to be a huge age gap between the, the people that they would be expecting to exploit, for instance, and have available at the drop of a hat, just aren't going to keep doing it. That is my impression. The the other thing it leads to is just, um, and this is also true of unpaid internships as a concept. The other thing it leads to is people who have money and have um, parents to back them up or a, a family home where you can work mm-hmm. from. Um, are going to be taking up all the all the entry level jobs and working at it for a few years because it's not a concern, which yeah. leads to a newsroom where there's less diversity in general, but mm. fewer fewer people from working backgrounds and that kind of thing, which is obviously bad for um, young working people who need enough money to pay the rent. Um, my parents have moved into a house. They live in Tiberi. They've moved into a house where there's no longer a spare bedroom for me. If I go home, I sleep. Uh, on the couch so yeah. I couldn't move home um, and so and so that le- and that's obviously also bad for readers because news newsrooms with less diversity cover less or, or fewer stories that are the the editorial team and the people in the news on the working on the floor would be aware of would be worth covering in stories you know um, and it gets more and more into the stereotype of just uh the media being the elites writing for other elites. I mean, if uh, if someone can't, if uh, if you can't live on the starting salaries or on the on the kind of commission you can get starting out, then either you're going to be working a different job than collecting a paycheck every now and then, which is not ideal as a way of doing it, or you're just not going to leave the industry. Um, and that's certainly a uh, and, that, and that's a that's a shame. And it's a shame for the readers as well. And it's a shame for anyone with any interest in uh, a media that actually portrays society as it is and tells stories that matter. Mm. I, I take a far more, um, I suppose, mercenary attitude towards this. I think, uh, I think, I think the days of this, the current pay rates that are being offered are going to have to End and end and end pretty quickly, like where you're just where, where junior journalists are being paid barely a hair over minimum wage on uh, on freelance deals. I think 
I think that can't last in the present circumstances. I'm aware of people who've uh, who've left newsrooms in the last couple of months to take up other work completely outside of the profession, just because it's not worth it to them to keep keep on a lengthy commute from, let us say, the Midlands for early morning shifts for not awful not an awful lot more money uh, when there's an awful lot more money going elsewhere. And well, I, I think. I hope, at any rate, the conditions are going to have to improve somewhere, but I just don't know where the money's going to come from. Uh, at any rate, uh, let's wrap it up. Let's ask, what are you guys actually hopeful for, rather than making it a little bit too miserable? What am I hopeful for? What are you hopeful for? Um, I'm, I don't know. I, I think that um, certainly uh, for the likes of maybe people like myself that like to do a bit of everything, um, in some ways, I know that some people think that the multi-platform journalist um, of present is, um, in some ways, you know, some people might argue it's actually taking advantage of people. I love doing a bit of everything. I love trying a bit of everything. I'd love to just keep doing that now for the meantime. Um, you know, I I think, and I, and I, I, I do want to continue and try and do it as long as I can, Um chance my arm for as long as I can and uh, you know um, as, as you said you know there might come a point and I think most people um, that get into journalism might th- um, have a backup in their mind <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know uh, you know there might come a point that I, ha- I have to um, choose a different career path but I, I like for now anyway I just I just love what I'm doing and I'll, I'll keep I'll keep going um, for as long as I can. And um, yeah, I don't know. Fantastic. Okay, <laughs> great. A great vote of confidence in the industry there. But you re- you reckon obviously the maybe you get a better subvention or something from the Broadcasting Authority or something, maybe. A <laughs> few Sound Vision grants, you know. Obviously, broadcast is maybe a possibly an easier situation for picking up grant money. Nathan, I think you're probably, you're probably screwed, yeah. Yeah, no, that's uh, very little to be hopeful for. No, that's for <laughs> true. I think, I think the pandemic, um, and also the sort of the general mood for change that was around before. I mean, with um, Sinn Fein doing so well for the first time in forever in the general election just before the pandemic, create something of an opportunity for uh, the idea of people are reading news more than they were because of the pandemic. Mm. But because of this uh, this mood for change, it means people who are upset at the system or upset at the government or whatever it is, aren't cynics. They're not turning around and saying, sure, it's all the same thing. They're, they're not just being cynical anymore. They're not just saying everything's terrible. The government, the media, everyone is all in on it. Yeah. Because um, they've recognized that there's something of an alternative, even just in a different political party. And what I'd say was, is hopeful out of that is other pub, um, publications, journals, magazines, uh, there's been a, a, a huge growth in left-wing magazines and broadcasting in Britain and the United States over the past few years. Now, that is yeah. one import from their media that I would like to see. Yeah. Um, but even just for sort of mainstream newspapers, people might start looking for... Uh, genuine opposition to what's happening they might look for genuine difference of thought they might look for they might start feeling happy feel happy buying a newspaper yeah. on the condition that they um they've realized 
not only that things are wrong, but that things could be better. And they want a newspaper and they want journalists to sort of reflect that and actually be investigating and actually be challenging and questioning and all the rest of it. And the more people think that can happen and the more people support, at least support journals and newspapers where that happens. I think there's there's hope that um, th- there's hope in the industry for there to be a space for people who are who are sort of happy not simply replicating press releases but would like to would like to really get their teeth into some stuff and even with some of the journals fact-checking stuff and that kind of thing and the currency as well there's a project exciting projects even over here that are like really really showing that if you can you can actually offer something new and you can offer some genuine some real honest regard reporting people are people are taking an interest people want to know what's happening they're not cynics, they're skeptics. And that's, I think that's quite healthy and good. And I'm hopeful to see less cynicism and more skepticism uh, from the readership going forward. I was just kind of wondering um, if, you know, from your own perspectives, I suppose, as a freelance journalist and student journalist at present, um, you know, do you think that there's a element of snobbery when it comes to choosing a publication that you might want to write for or maybe even I suppose not wanting to choose a regional paper or a local newspaper or is it just down to economics or or kind of what might be the general kind of feeling around it because I know certainly like just among people that I would have went to college with you know the aim was always going to be the national newspaper Mm. the national broadcaster and often you know local or regional you know that wouldn't have been given kind of a second's thought really yeah i think you got a point there because i mean when i when i started off i mean i i I interviewed for jobs in several regional radio stations and obviously didn't get them and then i kind of took the hump a bit because it was just like oh they just want to they just want to hire locals you know i was just like they, they, they obviously don't want to hire a dub to go work down the country but i am i do know people who are from dublin and have spent significant quantities of time working in the regional press and come back to dublin making significant careers so i don't know if it just didn't work for me might be that i'm not have i even pitched a regional paper ever i haven't um and I know and I there, they're, they're there are also not... freelancers out there say now, obviously, as you said, it might be a case that they're from a certain county and they'll mm. write their, you know, they'll do their local and they'll do their national as well. Mm. Um, and I don't know, is it necessarily a thing if you're maybe based in Dublin or from Dublin that, you know, you mightn't kind of necessarily think to kind of pitch to a regional because maybe there wouldn't be the, the same tradition of regional within Dublin as a county. but. Mm. There certainly, there certainly isn't, and, uh, but I, I would have, I would have always assumed that the regionals or the regional titles weren't in need of freelancers, and if they were, they certainly weren't in need of dubs to come down and do freelancing for them. It was always would always have been my impression, but I never, I've mm-hmm. never investigated it. It's just never occurred to me to do it. Oh, I've heard of just stories, even uh, just. I won't name any newspapers uh, or anything, but like begging people to do court reports and really and thing. Oh yeah, because you know yourself, um, not everyone mm. has shorthand, and not everyone, you know, uh, that is working within a paper wants to. You know, the court is very specialised, and it's not mm. everybody's cup of tea. But I don't know about yourself, Nathan. But would that have, would that be an aspiration, or would anyone kind of within the Observer kind of look to local or regional, or would it be more kind of 
Um, I mean, most of, uh, there's a there's a huge number of dubs in the Observer, so uh, we probably have all the the same problems there <laughs> in regards to uh, not necessarily th- even thinking to pitch out to them. Um, there probably is a certain amount of snobbery. Um, I if I was going to pitch a newspaper, I wouldn't even know. I'm aware of some of the titles, um, sort of Longford Leader, that kind of thing, but I, I've never read them, so I guess there's also a difficulty in just thinking to pitch to a paper if you've never heard of it. I mean, you'd have to, it would seem like you were really desperate if you were sort of checking databases and Wikipedia lists of uh, local papers in Ireland. If it's not one that serves the community you're currently living in, it's probably unlikely, or that you used to live in, it's relatively unlikely you'd even think to, to go there. And do you think uh, do you um, people from Dublin would be more reluctant to move outside of Dublin? Yes. Uh, I, I know I know several people who if the job down, is going will go. I, I know a few people I know a few people who've actually turned down being moved or sort of resisted it and been able to stay. Uh, the Irish Times owns several local regional papers and for a lot of their graduate entry positions, which I, I know I'm going off topic as far as freelancing is concerned, you're sort of required to spend six months either in one of them or in the examiner. Yeah. Um, that's more likely to be taken because it's taken on the condition that you're going to spend six months in Waterford or whatever it is. Yeah, and under the Irish and Times then unless HR you're, brand. Um, pardon? And under the Irish Times HR brand. I, yeah. I, feel, I feel like I, I feel like what will put me off and what has put, and, and to be fair, what in discussions has put me off in you know in the circumstances where certain a certain regional uh radio station for instance was interviewing me they asked you know do you see this as a long-term proposition and i'm just you know without wishing to send maybe 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 it is snobbery but i had to come up and say i see this as a short-term thing because you know quite honestly i don't want to live where i have no family connections no friends and also, at the time, I wasn't driving a car, so the the idea of being, you know, sort of almost marooned there for five days work a week and then wondering what happens at the weekends didn't appeal to me that strongly. And whereas I might, might have been able to give it, a, give it a lash for six months or something, I don't think... Well, anyway, they got the wrong vibes off me because they were looking for someone they wanted for five years, five years or longer, or for a really long-term training up situation and make you one of their own. And for whatever reason, it didn't appeal to me and I didn't appeal to them and I gave them the wrong vibes. That was, that was just the outworkings of it. And on a serious note, how much of a disadvantage is it for you without, or was it for you before you had a driver's license when it came to applying for jobs just, or even just like, you know, I suppose how it does it make it more difficult or obviously you'd be working more in Dublin, so it mightn't be the same, you know, disadvantage. Dublin is fine really without a driver's license. Um, I'd say any regional titles, well, look, it depends what sort of work you want to do. And also, like there's always a good screw in mileage. Do you know what I mean? Um, this that's that's the one of the points of negotiation which should never be compromised on is you won't go driving to do a job in your own personal vehicle or your own personal car or a car that you've borrowed or a car that you've hired without getting at least paid mileage or having the cost of it covered or having the cost of travel covered. But I remember I, I went and covered the general election last year, the general election count for the geez, 2019 now at this stage. Time flies and uh I didn't have my own car at that time. 
and couldn't get a taxi for love no money at the count station that or at in Thurlis where I was going to cover the count. Had to walk the length of the town. Okay, fine, no problem. Just towing half a radio station with me behind me. But I had to catch a lift from RTE and Virgin Media on successive days to get to the polling station. And you're just like, eh, you know, maybe you should have got a car. <laughs> but honestly, I, I, I want to maybe flip that question. To what extent would you consider working for international outlets or freelancing for international outlets? Because there's a huge English language press out there and not all of it is even in Anglophone countries. Aoife? Myself. Yeah. Oh, well, funnily enough, I was very much very interested in going to the US and I went and I was at the user building on the Keys in Dublin um, the week before COVID lockdown, so March of 2020. <laughs> and within a week, the company had shut down. Oh but I God. was just lucky. I was lucky. <laughs> I just didn't pay any, I didn't pay any money. So I was just lucky that I didn't lose money. Um, so yeah, I, to be honest with you, um, I think in some ways, you know, internationally, obviously it's going to be more, it would be more of a challenge. Like you're thrown into the deep end mm. and, you know, you don't, you don't maybe have the same understanding of culture, political systems, whatever it might be. But um, I think in some ways, um, yeah, if I was to work like in another country, I'd love to just go work for a year, really try and get a sense of you know what the culture is like and mm. you know you know do your research obviously as well um and then maybe go out maybe then maybe kind of work abroad but um i think um just yeah it, it's definitely um it's it's obviously very different um to ireland and it would certainly um it would certainly you know be a completely different landscape um fun i, I don't i don't really know necessarily uh you know, in terms of uh, job security or anything, would it be much of a different, um, the US, like New York specifically, like I'm sure, you know, it's just as difficult uh, uh, to get into and all of the rest. But um, I'd, what about yourself, um, Nathan? Would you um, I'd be, be interested in working abroad? Oh, genuinely. Oh, sorry, is the, is the question... It was the question yeah. freelancing for well, international free, press freelancing in, freelance, freelancing for the international press in any in any in any capacity i mean do you consider yourself to have a very focused look on the irish media landscape like a lot of people really do they just don't look beyond our shores and i mean i would absolutely i would absolutely take commission work from anyone um with who is looking to have uh, something written about ireland if i was staying in dublin i th i think uh one of the, the difficulties with the travel question is just traveling how far and for how long you wouldn't want to be mm. on a freelance contract for doing a lot of that kind of um, that stuff. Most people would hire someone in-house to do that. But if it was freelancing for the international press from where from Ireland, absolutely. And I'd say that I would have the same attitude on the local press from on the question where it's uh, like the problems you outlined. Most of it is just down to if you're going to work for a, a local newspaper or radio station you're going to have to actually live where it is and unless you have a connection to that community you might mm. not want to go and live there mm. um i don't think i don't think i'd let any sort of uh dublin snobbery get in the way of me accepting a paycheck if it didn't wasn't tied to living far away from nightlife and community which is mm. sort of the main reasons to stay in a big city um Never, ne I've never really considered pitching to the international press. That's actually a good question. I might, 
I might come the come the end of my current contract. I might sort of <laughs> look out to see what's uh, wanted and needed. Mm. Have you have you have you written um, for international press in the past, uh, Stephen? Have I? Uh, I think the closest I ever came was having was being approached. Uh, was approached through the, through the Dublin Enquirer to see if, if if I could do a piece for foreign policy once. Um, but I've never I've never really. I've never really cracked into it. I did once interview for Agence France Press, but they didn't have me. But it's something I—it's something I would—I would actually love to do—is uh, pick up one of those gigs. But I didn't have, at the time that the opportunities availed themselves to me. I was uh, for Agence France Press, didn't have the experience. But there are a lot of people who have made quite successful careers out of you know, and having got uh, sort of a leg up from taking on a part-time uh, a part-time commission-based uh, retainer-based gig with one of the major international outlets just to cover Ireland and great opportunities for travel within Ireland, great opportunities to kind of not write straightforward things, but write kind of discursive things about a culture that you truly understand. So what, what more would you want? Yeah, absolutely. Um... I suppose uh, maybe just silly me. I didn't uh, quite. Maybe I didn't quite uh, grasp grasp your initial question. But um, yeah, it must have been, it yeah. must have been a poor question in that case. No, no, I don't think so. I think I'm just a. Uh, I I'm a. Uh, I'm. What you time probably, is it now? Probably better wrap it up. It's just kind of half four. I'm in. I'm in here since uh, six a.m. this morning, so I'm oh, a little bit. I've, I've detained you guys far too long. All right. Well, we'll we'll wrap it up there. Thank you for joining me both on this uh, freelance forum podcast. Where may I ask if uh, if our listeners wish to hear more of your wonderful ideas, where can they find you on social media? I, I was right. So, if people want to see more of my stuff. Um, my social media handle is at Nathan George Y. Um, and I share not every article I write, but any of the ones I think are worth reading, uh, along with other thoughts and memes. And uh, I'm afraid I don't have a, a Twitter that I treat as a professional Twitter. It's uh, unfortunately ends up having my uh, it ends up having my uh, my jokes and my uh, my professional all mixed in together. But I think it's worth a follow if anyone's interested. So it's a reflection of a person rather than a <laughs> manufactured personality. I can dig it. Aoife, how about you? Uh, my Twitter is Kearns underscore Aoife. Yeah. Simple as Kearns underscore Aoife. Right, you heard it here, folks, first. You heard it here, folks, first. You heard it here first, folks. Uh, these guys, I'm sure, have far to go. Thanks very much for joining me. Yeah, and we'll, uh, we'll let you go there. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having me. This has been the Freelance Forum podcast brought to you by the Dublin Freelance Branch of the National Union of Journalists and made possible by network funding from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland Sectoral Learning and Development Programme. Music from podsummit.com released under a Creative Commons Zero license into the public domain. I'm Jared Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Take care and stay safe.